this week is Zechariah. You see a scroll flying behind him. You see uh, a shoot or a branch and, uh, of course, the prophetic staff. Uh, <clears throat> Zechariah's name means uh, Yahweh remembers, so God remembers, which, uh, of course, is an encouragement to the Israelites because uh, they have returned from exile and are seeking to establish uh, the nation anew and uh, are encountering some opposition and so are wondering uh, if God is really in this. And so through Zechariah, um, as well as uh, Haggai, do we have uh, words of encouragement to the leadership and to the people as they have returned. So his name means uh, Yahweh remembers. <clears throat> there are a number of people with the name Zechariah in the Bible, about two dozen in the Old Testament, uh, and also John the Baptist's father, you might recall, his name was Zechariah, so it's a common name. And probably none of the other people named in the Old Testament are this Zechariah, so we don't really know a whole lot about him. But uh, typically, we see his name is like a reminder of God's covenant faithfulness. He seems to come from a, a priestly family, so Leviticus. Uh, we're told that he is uh, the son of uh, Barakiah and the grandson of Iddo, who we know was a priest who returned with Zerubbabel. Uh, we find that in Nehemiah 12, uh, verses 4 and 16. Uh, this also seems to be the same Zechariah that is mentioned by Jesus in the New Testament, Matthew 23, as having been martyred uh, between the altar and the temple. So that uh, tells us a little bit about him and a little bit about the spiritual condition of the people at the time uh, of Zechariah's prophecy. So he's encouraging them or trying to encourage them, and at some point... They martyr him. Well, last week we went through an overview um, of Zechariah. All right. So last week we did an overview of Zechariah. And uh, just to remind you of uh, what we talked through, I've put the same slides up again. Did you want to say anything about these or? Um, no. Okay. All right. So. Uh, so here's the, these are, these are the slides that we put up last week, just sort of walking through the whole book. As you might remember, it begins with uh, a call to repentance, a, an exhortation for the people who have returned from exile to remember the past and learn from the past. And then it goes into descriptions, relatively short descriptions of eight uh, dreams uh, that Zechariah has that are meant to encourage the people as they build the temple, but also uh, to look to the future. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. So it moves on. You have some discussion of proper fasting, proper religious celebration, who can be involved, how to do so. We have some prophecies uh, against the Canaanites, the prophecies of deliverance, um, and uh, it moves on to talk about God saving Israel uh, or Judah specifically. 
but let's say the peep from the godless nations and the godless world order, it culminates with a, the day of the Lord, a description of the day of the Lord um, with um, what we might call the consummation of the creation. So, well, maybe we should say before we start walking through it, don't, don't fear as, um, Zachariah says, uh, fear not, fear not. We're not going to be here till eight o'clock tonight, because even if we stayed until 10 o'clock tonight, we still couldn't cover Ze Zechariah, um, properly. It would take, uh, quite a long study to do that. So we're going to kind of walk through our PowerPoint for, you know, as long as we, can um, until about like 7, 7.05. And then, you know, we, there will be a cutting off point and we'll resume um, next time. So fear not. Okay. So, <laughs> so the, as you see there, the most, most scholars see the Zechariah as sort of two sections that are, I don't want to say unrelated, but they, they're very distinct sections. Now, I say most scholars because there are some who see it a little differently. But as you see there, the most common breakdown sees chapters 1 through 8 and then chapters 9 through 14 as the two sections. And uh, some even have argued, you remember that word chiasm. So we're talking about a literary style where you have parallels far apart and then parallels a little closer and closer and closer until you get to a climax. This sort of approach to uh, writing. Some people think that Zechariah is made up of multiple chiasms like that. Um, whether it is or not is a little bit unclear. We'll talk a little more about the first one than we will the second set of, of versions. But if there are two chiasms, uh, those who have argued this have said that the climax of the first section is found in visions four and five. And those visions surround the, the persons, Zerubbabel, who was the political leader for the returnees, and the person who had sort of political response, the Jewish political leader, who had political responsibility for uh, the, the rebuilding of the temple. And remember from last week, that's why the, the Jews were sent back, to rebuild the temple. And then Joshua, who is the, the chief priest, uh, who returns. So he's a, a Levite. He's sort of the primary religious leader for the returnees. And so, uh, but, but what we're going to argue is that these two persons, especially in Zechariah, but also in Haggai to a lesser extent, but especially in Zechariah, they actually, uh, they represent or take on the, the descriptions of them, take on messianic implications. In other words, the two of them combine to become an image of Christ. And uh, we'll see that hopefully a little bit later. Now, those who try and see a chiasm in the second half would see the, uh, the climax of that section as uh, the sections in 10, 2, and 3, and then 13, 2, and 6, which include condemnations of idolatry and the cleansing of the temple. Now, remember, the, the whole of Zechariah, the, at least in his own day, is focused on uh, restoring the temple uh, and then beginning the sacrificial system so that the people of God can be the people of God in the land. Now, I, I have on the bottom of the screen there, just real quick, uh, there is one pretty prominent evangelical scholar who argues that we shouldn't break it down into 1 through 8 and 9 through 14, but rather we should see it as a unified whole. 
divided right in the middle of the book uh, in chapter six. And interestingly, there in verses nine through 15 of chapter six, if that really is the, the culmination or the, the middle ground, in those verses, we have a crown being placed on Joshua, the high priest, who is called the branch. And you might recognize that language from uh, Isaiah and elsewhere in the Old Testament referring to the Messiah. What I find interesting about pointing these different ways of breaking down or seeing the literary style of the book uh, being put together is that in, in all of these, you have uh, the cleansing of the nation, you have temple worship, and you have imagery of, um, of messianic figures uh, being the center of Zechariah. So when we think of the book of Zechariah, it's probably best to think of the Messiah uh, and think of appropriate or proper worship of the Lord. And that's about the best I can do with that. Now, here's just to just to speak to the difficulty of the book of Zechariah. I put one quote, but I came across several similar quotes. But this is uh, by a, a former colleague of mine at Southwestern Seminary, George Klein, who wrote the uh, the New American Commentary. Uh, Stefan is going to going to Vanna is going to show it for us. See. Uh, Anyway, the, the New American Commentary, he says, few biblical authors approach Zechariah's sophistication, diversity, and quantity of intertextual citations. What he means is there's, there are a lot of citations from other books in the Old Testament. There are a lot of citations in the New Testament or references in the New Testament, and it's just all over Zechariah, which makes Zechariah incredibly hard to interpret and understand. So if you this last week read through Zechariah and said, well, I hope John and Stefan are going to make it all clear. Uh, keep praying, number one, <laughs> for that <laughs> and pray for us. And number two, uh, recognize that you're not alone, right? It's, it's just a difficult book. So we're going to do our best to, to highlight some of the key points, but... Uh, I'll also sort of uh, try to lower the expectation by letting you know that biblical scholars don't even agree on what a lot of these things mean. But we can see connections to other passages and see that, you know, imagery that's common in uh, uh, prophetic writing and in the Old Testament. Right now, this is blurry. I, I recognize that, but I put this up here because some of you may have come across the Gospel Project videos, Bible Project. Bible Project videos, sorry, that are on uh, YouTube. That where these people walk through. Here's what the whole book means, and they do it in usually like two to two to eight minutes. So, uh, in their rendition of Zechariah, we don't agree with everything they do, but what they what they do try to show is how something like that chiastic structure in that first set of visions would look. So we're talking. There are eight visions at the beginning of Zechariah. Those dream visions he has. And they do seem to parallel one another in some way. How that is or what that means is not entirely clear, but uh, I think they lay out nicely how the first vision can parallel the eighth, and then the second parallels the seventh, and the third parallels the sixth, and the fourth and the fifth kind of go together, which means, of course, 
again, that's kind of like that chiastic structure coming to a point at four and five. And four and five are about Zerubbabel and Joshua. So did you want to say something about that? Um, well, I'd be happy to kind of just point, point out some things um, in the structure. So, of course, in the... Oh, do you? Well... In the in the in the first and the eighth, you have um, the ideas of the four horses, blurs that are patrolling the earth, um, um, showing that the you know the world situation is is stable. It's under God's control. God is on the watch over it, and the people should just focus on rebuilding. And that the last one um, kind of reminds them again that God's presence is over all the earth. That God is God is taking care of things. Um, the second and the and the um, seventh are, I think, maybe a little more tenuous at what their parallel is. But you've got the horns um, of nations that terrorized Israel that are being removed, and then to parallel that, you have this um, basket of wickedness that is removed from the people. So I guess that that, that removal um, is is maybe something that they have in common. Maybe there's there's a little bit more, but and we're going to talk about each of these oh, yeah. a little bit more. This is not all. Um, in the third vision, you have the, the plumb line or the measuring line and also the idea of the firewall. And uh, then the parallel vision, you have the flying scroll. And that kind of seems to show that um, God is protecting Israel on the outside. And then God's word is convicting Israel on the inside. And so he is uh, kind of um, he's protecting his people on the outside and purifying his people on the inside. So there are those two. And then in the very middle, you have, um, as John said, Joshua and Zerubbabel. So with Joshua, you have this vision where his sin is removed by God. The filthy garments are replaced with clean garments. Um, God says the land will also be cleansed of guilt and God's blessing will be restored and kind of assumed through Joshua's priestly ministry that the people will be um, restored. And that Zerubbabel is uh, the leader um, the political leader who, who leads with God's blessing is another channel through whom the, the spirit of God works to accomplish the task of rebuilding. So um, in that way, I think they fit pretty, pretty tightly together. And, you know, it's a good way to kind of you know, work, uh, work through, through these uh, first years. Um, okay. So just one last thing about, an overall way of like looking uh, at um, a, a one or two more slides on looking at Zechariah as a whole. So notice, as I've already said this, his message is meant to encourage the returning exiles in rebuilding the temple. Um, but he does so by reminding them of the past, like what brought us here. But not only that, like from the beginning, God called Abraham. God, you know, brought us out of Egypt. God brought us into the promised land, but we sinned. And so ultimately we ended up in exile, but now God has made a way for us to come back and he put us here for this purpose, you know, so there's this kind of a thing. But he also then, so in addition to reminding them of the past and encouraging them in the present, right? We're here for this purpose. God put us here. God has a plan for us. Then there's a pointing to the future, and that future includes, obviously, God's fulfillment of his promises from the beginning, right? God's, God's overall plan will come to fruition. And so 
in Zechariah, there's a lot of movement between reminding of the past, speaking of the present, or the immediate, you know, the relatively immediate context of the exile, and then pointing far into the future, like even the future for us today. And that also includes uh, the pointing into the future sometimes includes a pointing to the Messianic age, right, the time of Jesus. So we'll see references to events and attitudes um, that took place in Jesus's day and were in some way fulfilled in Christ or fulfilled in that day, uh, even sometimes like, for example, the Pharisees, but also have an even future fulfillment. So you remember that Again, this comes back to that prophetic perspective we talked about. We introduced that concept a while back where the prophet sees something and then there might be a big gap of time and there's another fulfillment and then there's another big gap of time and yet another fulfillment. Uh, and for the prophet, he may not always describe it as if it's you know different events with large gaps of time between them. This really applies in Zechariah. And sometimes the indication that he's talking about something in the far future is uh, a comment as simple as he talks about both Judah and Israel together as a unified nation, which, of course, at this point was not yet the case. So, uh, again, there are multiple there can be multiple levels of meaning of some of what he talks about. Um, and even when he refers to the exodus from Egypt, sometimes he's. He'll talk about that, and he's also referring to the return from the exile in Babylon, like another exodus. And by the way, in the book of Jeremiah, um, Jeremiah says uh, that um, in returning from exile, and this is before Jerusalem had been destroyed, that in the return from exile, that there will be something even more incredible than when they came out of Egypt, so this comparison of the exodus from Egypt and the return from Babylonian exile already was being preached by Jeremiah, probably other prophets like him, um, before Jerusalem was ever taken. So we're going we're gonna to move to these visions. Um, and let me, uh, let me say that, what, what, before we do that, I want to say that Zechariah, the very beginning of his his message is he calls the people to repent and he reminds them of God's not only judgment, but his grace, right? So he says, um, he says, return to me, declares the Lord, that I may return to you, says the Lord of hosts. That's in verse three of chapter one. And then he goes on to remind them of, you know, your, your forefathers rejected me and, you know, and now you're having to return from exile because of it. But, uh, but the, the imagery, again, is, is one of God's grace, and, uh, and that sets the tone for the whole book. So the first vision, you have, a, you have a, a rider on a red horse among some myrtle trees with red and white horses behind him, uh, and he's, they're described as patrolling the earth. Um, and uh, I would say, you know, we should be careful against trying to read this too much, uh, too closely paralleled to Revelation, because in Revelation, the red horse is associated with war, 
And here, this red horse says, all is at peace. Now, we might say, well, he's the, the horse that represents war, and now he is just standing among the myrtle trees because the earth is at peace, and he doesn't have to ride forward. Perhaps. I, I just think it's, it's, we should be careful against reading too, careful, too closely these different horse riders with those of Revelation. Um, what's interesting is he does proclaim all is at peace. So again, you have a beginning at the beginning of these visions, this imagery of a peaceful earth, which is, of course, uh, what is promised in the final uh, messianic kingdom. So it begins with this imagery. And what's interesting is really that the key is in verses uh, 12 through 17, Right following that vision, you have this question of how long, Lord, how long before uh, you restore uh, Jerusalem? And we're told God judged Jerusalem, but it's, uh, it's described as temporary. I mean, he almost says, I was just a little mad which is kind of funny because the, the way it was described when the prophets were speaking, it was, it was pretty mad in verse 15. But the point is that the disaster that the nations brought, and when we say the nations, who? Assyria and Babylon, primarily, they were the instruments of God's judgment, right? It was almost as if they went too far. And that is why, uh, as we read in Habakkuk, God comes and judges them as well. And so, uh, in verse 17, we're told God will again uh, bless or choose Jerusalem. And so the words um, of comfort and mercy uh, figure highly here. So, you know, I've experienced the trauma of exile and, um, and also, you know, time that they've been waiting uh, to pick back up on building the temple for, you know, the 18 years past. Um, this message of um, of mercy and God's grace to them, God's compassion to them, God's mercy uh, is very valuable to them. Um, God, the, the security that's going to come from the Lord. All right. The second vision is one of four horns and craftsmen. Um, in most cases, we see the horns represent nations, hostile nations. And there's some question, I mean, again, interpreters don't know which, which, which nations might these be, and we're just not sure. Uh, if we say they're historical nations from the past, uh, or, or actual nations presented symbolically all the nations that have uh, warred or, or uh, worked against God's plan in, uh, as realized in Israel, if we say they're, spe they're real specific historical nations and they're four specific, right? It could, it could be uh, looking to the past. And if we were looking to the past, it would be uh, Assyria, Babylon, Medea, and Persia, right? Maybe it was the, them. Um, another alternative is to see these four nations as uh, those uh, spoken of by Daniel, so like a parallel to Daniel. And in that case, it would be uh, Babylon, um, Medeo, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Uh, another way of looking at it is to say, well, at this point, uh, when Zechariah is prophesying, Persia has been sort of a positive influence because they've allowed them to go back and return. So perhaps it's Assyria, Babylon, 
um, and then in the future, Greece, who will, uh, when Greece is in leadership of uh, uh, Palestine or the Middle East, they actually sacrifice a, a pig to Zeus on the altar in Jerusalem. And then the Romans ultimately destroy the temple. So I'm inclined to see that, although there aren't any commentators out there writing it. So maybe I have to write my own commentary. Or, sure. Yeah, Stefan says, sure. All right. So um, the, the, the horns are uh, those nations that are against Israel. And, and the, the promise of God in verse 21 is that they will be thrown down. Right. So the opposition to uh, Israel, the opposition to God's plan through Israel uh, uh, that that comes by historic nations, but also by, let's say, ungodly world order or world power um, that will be overthrown. The third vision, and this might be where we have to stop. Maybe. Um, so we're told there's a man with a measuring line who's measuring Jerusalem. Um, and what's interesting is, I think, is that there are, there are no walls. Now, we, in, in uh, the book of Revelation, of course, the, the new Jerusalem has walls. So what could this mean? Why, why an imagery of Jerusalem with no walls? Well, you might say, well, John... Their Jerusalem at that time had no walls. It had been destroyed. And so maybe that's why. Perhaps, but it seems like for Zechariah, the lack of walls for Jerusalem becomes, like literally, becomes now a prophetic uh, image of a future fulfillment of the Abrahamic uh, covenant, where all peoples will be coming to Jerusalem to learn of God. And so the no walls becomes uh, an imagery for the scope. There'll be too many people to inhabit the city. If you put walls up, it wouldn't, it, the city wouldn't be big enough to hold all the people who are coming to Jerusalem in the final days to learn of the Lord. Also, uh, it also speaks of second protection, right? They don't need in the, in the final kingdom, in the consummation, when God remakes everything, there won't be a need for walls around the city because God will be, will be their protection himself. In 2.5, we're told God will make a wall of fire. That harkens back to the imagery of God being uh, the Israelites uh, as a wall of fire as he led them through uh, the wilderness, but also as he protected them. So I think this chapter two, this, this vision in chapter two is a big morale boost. So, you know, several times God has given visions of protection and um, uh, the measuring line is mentioned in uh, back in chapter one first, as uh, God says, my house will be rebuilt and a measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem. So the temple and the city, the city walls and um, uh, the you know, so there's there's hope for safety and that the insurmountable task uh, and the demoralizing situation that they're in right now will be resolved um, in addition to the temples being rebuilt. So then in chapter two, where the measuring line is seen a second time or the, or the plumb line we've seen in other places like in Amos, it's um, and, and in other places, it's an image of, of judgment, you know, of, of measuring and of judgment. And here it seems to be something optimistic. 
So you have this um, promise of the numerous population and of God as protector with a phrase that I think we're um, familiar with. I think it appears in the Psalms as well that um, God is their protector, that Israel, that Judah will be the apple of his eye or the pupil of his eye. And so whoever tries to touch them is actually coming against God. And so God gives them the promise of this security and that he'll dwell among them again through the temple as in the past. So in his holy dwelling. But the other the other aspect of this, again, I mean, just I don't want to like beat a dead horse. But what's interesting is that, again, he he in verses uh, 11 through 12, he says, right, many nations, many nations will uh, join them. Uh, and they will, will join themselves to the Lord in that day, and they will become my people. Yeah. And and then it says, I will dwell in your midst, and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. The Lord will possess Judah as his portion in the Holy Land. So the Lord will dwell in their midst. Of course, we see this at, at the consummation in the book of Revelation at the very end. The uh, there. That, that God will come out of heaven and will dwell in the new Jerusalem with men, right? The, the dwelling of man will now, or the dwelling of God will now be with men. Um, and so again, all people's coming, uh, again, an image, uh, imagery of fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that all peoples would be blessed through him. Well, I think we're at, we're not at the best stopping point, but we're at the end of our time, and uh, and that's fine. Next week, we'll pick up with visions four and five and six and seven and eight, uh, and then we will also, so I have Zechariah 9 through 14. I guess it's going to be visions uh, four through the end of 14, and then we're going to try and do Malachi together, so we're going to try and sort of tie it all up next week, and we're not going to have any questions this week. <laughs> so, so I'm going to remove that. So this is next week, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to walk through the rest of Zechariah.